Welcome to Point Two Law Review. My name is John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. And we are here the week of March 28th through March 31st. And there's been absolutely zero legal developments in the news over this past week. Nothing. nothing. Absolutely nothing. It is just dull. There's, I mean, it's just a desert of information and news and historical making indictments. I mean, there's nothing. (laughs) Right? I mean, you almost buried the lead, except for you dropped indictment in there. Well, who knows what that means. Yeah, could mean anything. I'm going to be willfully obtuse and say I have no idea what I'm talking about. And we're just going to move forward. How's how's life with you? It's wonderful. Yesterday was 70 degrees. Oh, beautiful. And it was just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, you know, we're marching towards, we've got the warm weather out. It, the days are longer. You have your final wonderful. four? I, that's true. I, I mean, I didn't pick any of the oh. crack final four. I mean, talk about a wild year. Well, let's let's do this. This will be fun. Yeah. Uh, who's your pick? To win it all now? Yeah. UConn. UConn. Yeah, I think UConn. Okay. Well, we'll revisit that next yeah, week. We'll see how that take was, <laughs> and then we can maybe come back and edit. I don't know what yeah, things fix are. That. We'll fix that. But let's start with the uh, ex parte summary uh, for the Nebraska Supreme Court cases that just dropped uh, low forty five minutes ago. Um, yeah, and- look at us! Wow. <laughs> We're over coffee this time in the morning, so let's uh, figure it out. Uh, what what we got three cases, and you've got the first one. What is what's the one sentence little blurb? Uh, yeah, so State v. Mead, and the one sentence blurb is um, correctly advising defendant of rights at sentencing. All right, all right. I have a State v. Uh, Valdez, and it's a state appeal, and I'm going to say exception. No good, too unique. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, and then mine is Pinnacle Bank Corporation versus Moritz. And for this, I would say um, social media use and the workplace. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, what? D- dramatic. All right. Let's get into them. What's your first one from the Nebraska Supreme Court? So the first one from the Nebraska Supreme Court is State versus Mead, which, was, as I stated a couple of seconds ago, this is a case about um, correctly advising a defendant of his rights, his or her rights at uh, the time of uh, changing a plea. Um, here, this was an appeal from district court after um, an entry of plea that went to the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals said, um, yeah, this individual maybe didn't get uh, all of his rights at the time he entered his plea, but it appears from the record that he made it knowingly and, and intelligently, voluntarily, and he knew uh, what he was saying. The Supreme Court says, nope, that's not enough. Um, and, I, you know, I think this is an important, you know, it's a very important opinion for uh any legal practitioners in the criminal world and, you know, uh, judges alike. And the, the reason it's important is just that they are very clear and the Nebraska Supreme Court is very clear about what has to happen uh, when you do a change of plea in a criminal matter and the rights that must be advised. And if you don't advise those rights, uh, then it the case is um, sent back to where it was uh, before those rights were entered, meaning that uh, the, the plea's withdrawn, the defendant's rearranged, and you kind of start all over. And, uh, you know, you have to uh, get all of the, the rights that are outlined um, in this opinion every single time you go to waive those rights, so before you go to enter your plea. And, you know, it's pretty clear about the things you have to be informed on. And so it's it's... One of those opinions, it's, it's been around for a while, but it's always a good thing to have refreshed to make sure every single time, you know, before a defendant waives those rights and enters a plea, you know, those things get done. 
And yeah. so it's a short opinion because there's not a ton to it. But again, just it's super important. Yeah, I mean, we're here because of constitutional rights and, and the process that we have. And so if somebody's going to give those up, they got to know what they're giving up. Absolutely. And so uh, our courts say that that's important to advise them uh, when they're giving those up. And you got to do it each time, right? Absolutely. All right. Um, so this is State v. Valdez. It's a district court of Sarpy County appeal. Um, what happened here is Mr. Or Valdez, um, not Valdez. That's the Exxon Valdez is what I was thinking of, the oil tanker in Alaska. It's Valdez. Um, sorry, I mispronounced it, Mr. Valdez. So what we have here is he was convicted, or excuse me, he was acquitted of a, a felony, second-degree assault, um, and the trial court and, uh, gave an instruction, a jury instruction on self-defense. And after he was acquitted, the state took exception to that and said, well, that jury instruction based on the facts that were presented should not have been um, given as an instruction. And they're granted leave on the trial court basis to take that exception up. And then the Nebraska Supreme Court uh, this morning said that the um, it, we're not going to talk about that. It's too... Um, it's not a, a general advisory opinion that would help any other court. The, it's so fact specific on whether the defense uh, of self-defense or defense of property should be given in a jury instruction that we're not going to give an advisory opinion about it. So they dismissed the appeal and they indicated that the state emphasized the unique set of facts at oral argument, which doesn't uh, bode well for a broad advisory opinion. So that was a four-pager from the Nebraska Supreme Court when they uh, dismissed the appeal. A whopping four-pager. Yes. Wow. Uh, so the next is not a four-pager. It is a 32-pager, so lucky <laughs> me. Um, and this is Pinnacle Bank Corporation versus Moritz. Very interesting opinion. Um, the uh, crux of the entire opinion is uh, regarding whether or not an in this individual should get employment benefits. Um, an independent employment tribunal had said yes. Uh, the district court had affirmed that because they said that um, the thing that he was terminated for, the misconduct, was not uh, related to work activities. And so the entire discussion of this case and the crux of this case becomes about if uh, Moritz, who had uh, posted some pretty egregious things um, about you know, some uh, things with a, a uh, mayor and then a couple other public officials uh, regarding, you know, again, just, you know, some terrible explicitives and, and some, you know, um, terrible things that actually happened in this, this person's life on their own uh, personal Twitter account. And so um, Pinnacle Bank found this through one form or another, uh, looked at this and said, okay, since you are a bank officer, this violates our uh, workplace um, social media use um, handbook or section of our handbook. And so they terminated uh, Moritz. And Moritz says, um, hey, you know, fine, you can fire me, whatever, you know, this is Nebraska, we're not well state, but, you know, this isn't, this misconduct isn't related uh, to my workplace activities. And so the Nebraska Supreme Court goes through a in-depth, exceptional discussion of, you know, many, many cases um, that that uh, that court has handled before regarding when is um, 
you know, social media or how, how should we classify social media as far as is it, you know, related to workplace activities or not re- related to workplace activities when it comes to that misconduct. And so they go through a huge discussion on that. I think it's, you know, super impl- important for um, employment lawyers, things like that, when you're looking at handbooks or looking at that misconduct issue. Um, and eventually they, they, um, agree with the district court and with the tribunal that, you know, even though these posts were, you know, fairly egregious, they were made um, on the person's individual private account. They weren't really made as a bank um, officer. And so that misconduct was not related to uh, work activities. And therefore, um, you know, more it should be entitled uh, immediately to uh, unemployment benefits rather than having to wait, I think it was going to be approximately 14 weeks had he been uh, fired for workplace misconduct. Um, and so again, long discussion there, a lot of, a lot of good case analysis. And then the, the, the big zinger at the end was that there is um, a pretty good um, dissent, or I, I should say a pretty long or in-depth dissent from uh, Justice Castle and then Justice uh, Funk, who um, basically say that uh, you know, this this conduct was in the um, the employee handbook. This employee knew about it. And so, you know, therefore, you're you're kind of losing the uh, forest through the trees here. You know, this is something that employers should be able to regulate and should be able to say, hey, you're an officer of our company. You can't do you can't um, conduct yourself in a way that would be detrimental or, or could potentially lose us employees and, you know, cause is- issues in the public. And so absolutely, that should be a workplace um, conduct and, and, you know, misconduct that, that's related to your work activities. And so that's what the uh, uh, dissent is about, but it's a, a long and in-depth um, dissent. And so a good opinion if, uh, you know, any of that sounds like it connects to uh, anything you might be doing in practice or, you know, if you're just interested about the new, uh, ad, you know, I say new, it's been around for a long time, but we continue to juggle with um, social media and technology in the workplace and in this uh, new era. And so anytime the, the law is always slow and catching up. And so this is another one of those opinions where the law is trying to catch up to you know, how we conduct ourselves in everyday life on uh, social media and technological platforms. No, yeah, it's an important area and it's something that we're going to have to deal with um, as we move forward while the courts try and regulate my MySpace account. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so that's it for Nebraska Supreme Court, right? Yeah. Okay, three opinions. We're going to go to the Court of Appeals. Uh, I think I'm right back up, right? Yep, it's you. Okay, so uh, then we come to White versus White, which is a published opinion from the Nebraska Court of Appeals, and this is an appeal from the District Court of Washington County, and the crux of this issue is essentially whether or not a... um, premarital agreement, um, so uh, essentially a prenuptial agreement, um, was uh, adequately uh, levied against an estate of um, the deceased spouse. And so here the issue is um, when the uh, White children are probating their uh, dad's estate, Jameson and Ryan White, when they're probating their dad's estate, when they file the probate, they acknowledge that there was a premarital agreement for a payment of $100,000 and that that agreement was valid. But then the ex-wife fails to uh, ever make a claim against the estate. And so the issue then becomes whether or not her claim is time barred uh, by the um, time to make claims against a uh, probate estate in the state of Nebraska. And so there's, you know, an in-depth analysis on um, whether or not, you know, she needed to do that. And essentially the court comes to the conclusion as the district court had that, you know, Jameson and Ryan had um, 
you know, overtly and explicitly acknowledged that the premarital agreement was valid and that, you know, it was valid against the estate at the time of filing. And so they now couldn't say that, oh, you didn't file a claim. And so it's not uh, valid against you. And so there's that issue. And then the uh, district court addresses a little bit um, some ownership of a camper and essentially whether or not it was uh, jointly owned property that um, would not be subject to the probate or whether or not it was something that should be um, in the probate. Um, but Again, just a, another good opinion on uh, claims, ma- filing claims, making claims against the states, and then, you know, that little intersection, which, you know, we do see uh, a fair amount, but you don't see a ton of case law on it of how you handle those uh, premarital um, contracts or, or claims against the states uh, when you have someone pass and you have something like that that uh, either you need to file or need to, to try to enforce. Um, and there also is a concurrence on here as far as, uh, again, the, the non-claim statutes and the claim statutes in Nebraska in regard to filing against the state. So some more uh, useful discussion there from the Court of Appeals. That's great. This is State v. Garcia Pellico. It's a uh, criminal case. Uh, defendant here was convicted of some serious felonies. He was sentenced to 45 to 60 years. Um, there was a jury trial on these uh, felonies, and then the state rested. And the defendant moved to dismiss, and the defendant moved to dismiss, and he said, well, uh, there's grounds. They failed to identify that the uh, the age of the uh, victim. Um, the court says, because he was convicted of uh, sexual assault of a child, and the child allegedly was, well, ultimately um, found was 13. The state didn't provide any evidence in their case in chief about the age of the defendant, direct evidence, I guess, only circumstantial is what they could have done. And so the defendant moved to dismiss, and then the court says, um, they asked the state, what evidence did you give to the age of the defendant? And then they immediately say, the state says, Let's, uh, we're going to move to reopen the evidence and establish the age. And the district court grants it. The question here, um, after the defendant is ultimately convicted and appeals on a 1B felony, is, is that too much involvement from the trial court to advocate for one position or the other by simply asking the state um, what evidence do you have to show the age of the defense or the, of the victim here? The ultimately the court of appeals says that's not enough, you know, involvement of the, uh, court to say that they were advocating for one position or the other and that they relied on, this is contrary from state v gray where there was an enhancement hearing. I assume it was a habitual criminal or something. I didn't look at State v. Gray. It's a 2000 case. But they offered cases, uh, certified copies of cases at an enhancement hearing. And then there was a continuance for the defendant to, uh, for some reason. So the hearing was continued. During that time of the continuance, the uh, court, on its own motion, notified all the parties and said the evidence that was offered was insufficient because it didn't indicate that um, the defendant knowingly and intelligently waived his right to counsel so that they weren't going to use those offered cases. Now, after that notification, the state moved to withdraw the arrest and present additional evidence, and the trial court granted that. They reversed on, on appeal in State v. Gray by saying, you know, you can't do that. That's advocating by doing it on your own motion. And the way this gets uh, around that and the way ultimately he was convicted is by saying he didn't necessarily, the court didn't necessarily ask 
or, or indicate that you need to withdraw your arrest. They simply asked what evidence there was to age. So he was ultimately uh, convicted of that. The appeal was affirmed. There were also excessive uh, sentence allegations, which within the statutory realm, or excuse me, within the statutory range. So it was affirmed. Okay, next case we have is State v. Clark. Uh, this is a pro se appeal from a post-conviction relief. Um, here there weren't a lot of uh, different issues raised that were uh, raised on the original, then were what were raised on the original appeal. Um, and so the court uh, gets rid of those pretty quickly because there was no change in facts and all of the defenses that are being raised in appeal were also the same ones that were being uh, raised at trial. Um, and then there was um, so a little bit of discussion on uh, him raising both, both ineffective assistance of counsel on um, original trial counsel and then also on post-conviction relief counsel. And there they, um, you know, get rid of both. And then the final one is that, you know, there's no constitutional guarantee to effective assistance of assistance of counsel in a post-conviction action and so that you can't even um, make that or allege that and so uh, they kind of um, pretty quickly and pretty briefly uh, go through that uh, pro se appeal and affirm state v harms this is a post-conviction action uh he said indicates that uh, his plea-based conviction was involuntary due to lack of competency uh he was convicted of 10 10 10 counts, or excuse me, three counts of child pornography after um, initially being charged with 10 counts. He was served, uh, sentenced to 15 to 20 years consecutive on each count. Um, the district, or the Court of Appeals here dismisses the competency claim, saying that it wasn't raised in the trial court or on direct appeal, and they also dismiss a number of ineffective assistance of counsel claims based on the failure to raise the competency issue and the denial of uh, post-conviction relief was affirmed. Okay, the next opinion we come to is um, In Re Trust of Pearl Giveneter um, and Edward Fogarty versus uh, Wells Fargo Bank as trustee. Um, and the, the crux of this case, case, which I actually think is an interesting case maybe to take a look at for attorneys, um, and the crux here is the uh, Mr. Fogarty is trying to get um, pre-death attorney's fees here. And the issue was that he had not filed a claim against Pearl uh, while she was still living. And then he tried to file the claim against the trust, but he'd not done any of the work on the trust. And so those fees weren't directly related to the trust. And so essentially it just goes through the multiple places that this um, claim was dismissed. And, you know, I'm not going to go in depth on um, this proceeding, but essentially, you know, it, it, I, I do think there is value in one looking at this opinion and looking at opinions like this, because here I believe Mr. Fogarty is claiming you know, something like uh, over $100,000 in legal fees. And so, you know, it, it, it may be one of those things where sometimes, you know, you never feel good either filing suit against your client or filing a claim against your client or filing a claim against your client's estate early on. Uh, but it's also one of those things where, you know, looking at that and making sure you try to preserve uh, your ability to get some of those fees um, is important. And so, you know, this is kind of one of those cases where it's worth maybe just taking a passing glance uh, just so you can try to think about how to insulate yourself should you be in a similar situation. That's a good practice tip. Thank you. Got to get paid. Yeah. Speedy trial on State v. Johnson. The defendant filed a motion for absolute discharge. The issue here was there was a psychological evaluation uh, ordered after a uh, request for a competency evaluation. In the report, um, I think it was 
completed in March of 2020, or excuse me, March of 2019, and then it wasn't provided to the parties, no, March 19th, 2021, and it wasn't provided to the parties until March 8th of 2022. So the report was set on for almost a year, and uh, the state did not inquire about the report for a year, and the defendant here wants that time where the state didn't inquire about the report that was done for a year um, to go against the state and provide him with an absolute discharge. Well, um, the Court of Appeals here says no. The We've previously held that when a state asks for a continuance or something that it's granted and there's, there's no disposition of the motion that the defendant raised, that time is not uh, going to go against the state. It's going to toll the uh, speedy trial clock so that all time excluded from the filing of the motion to disposition of that motion is um, going to be excluded. And that seems to be consistent with everything we've we've seen here so far. So if your strategy is to get an absolute discharge, you got to watch your motions and uh, make sure you get them disposed of quickly. That's it on Mr. Johnson's case. Okay. Uh, the next case we come to is Johnson versus uh, Frakes, and this is a pro se appeal from a mandamus action against the director of the Nebraska Department of Correctional Services in regards to um, a good time issue. Um, and here the claim is barred by multiple things, um, namely jurisdiction, um, also uh, preclusion, and then uh, his uh, constitutional arguments also fail. Um, here, uh, the big issue is, you know, just essentially that uh, both of these things had um, already uh, been uh, dealt with in prior uh, mandamus filings and that, um, you know, the uh, Court of Appeals here didn't have um, jurisdiction over this um, IF, IFP uh, appeal because it had not been, um, or the record was not perfected from the district court. And so this uh, opinion was affirmed. State v. King, and I've been waiting to get to one of these. I was I was hoping it would be longer, but here we are. Here we are. It's a sovereign citizen appeal. Oh. Uh, individual was driving without a license. <clears throat> um, he had a placard over his license plate area on his vehicle that said private property, um, and that was where his license should be. And I'm not going to go into detail because, you know, it's just – it was hard to read and uh, it, it doesn't apply anything that's applicable to really anything. In fact, it was uh, equivalent to, to banging my head against the wall uh, while putting my nails on a chalkboard and standing on glass. Um, it, it was tough to read hard. And I don't know how I, I appreciate our appellate courts, not just responding with a Billy Madison gif. Um, <laughs> Cause that's exactly what I wanted, oh, you to, wanted do. to do. Yeah. So anyway, nothing there. Davey King, probably skip it. Last opinion I have is in uh, Ray interest of Christopher G. Uh, this is an appeal coming out of the Dawson County um, Court. Uh, juvenile proceeding on a termination of parental rights. Now uh, we actually have a reversal here. Um, because of um, termination not being in the best interest of the child. And 
what we have here, and, and the court goes through it again, uh, this looks a lot like the case we had oh, a couple months ago where a uh, father was incarcerated. Um, and, you know, one of the primary reasons for termination and best interest was that incarceration. And here uh, the court, uh, you know, says again that, you know, incarceration alone essentially isn't enough. And, um, you know, here the father had made efforts. There were certain communications. The father was going to be uh, released fairly soon. Um, and so, you know, when they go through that analysis, you know, there wasn't, um, you know, he, he was complying with everything that the case plan had laid out as far as goals while he was incarcerated. And so, and so here, um, you know, it looked like maybe there were some fail, failures of the department to make, um, you know, maybe enough reasonable efforts. I think that's probably, you know, one of the crux of the issues here. And then the second issue is just that, you know, he, um, had essentially said that he he was um, incarcerated in Kentucky and he had said that he was uh, willing to come and was planning to come to Nebraska upon his release and uh, pursue re reunification. And they said here, um, you know, he should have the opportunity to uh, do that because there wasn't enough, there wasn't clear and con convincing evidence that he was unfit um, as a parent and that he, he should have the opportunity to um, try to be a parent. And so they reversed on best interest grounds. I, I notice that I say interesting a lot, but that one is particularly interesting and, and probably worth a look if you've got a, a juvenile case uh, on appeal or, or close to termination or something. And like they're that. so factually, um, you know, fact heavy and, and factually important that you know, anytime you get a case with some new right. uh, facts that you can use, it's great. So, yeah. All right, Steve B. Smith. This is a domestic assault and a child abuse uh, convictions. Horrible facts. Um, pled down from some serious felonies. Uh, the individual here, Mr. Smith, was given consecutive sentences. On appeal, he alleges ineffective assistance of counsel and excessive sentence. Um, Mr. Smith was released, and nobody, I don't, I think the court just assumes he w was released. I, um, they issued an order to show cause, and I, I think nobody responded to it. So they assume that the excessive sentence issue is moot. And the ineffective assistance of counsel claim was based on uh, Mr. Smith's uh, trial counsel allegedly from Mr. Smith's point of view overstating the favorability of the plea agreement and that the uh, Court of Appeals here says well there's no evidence on the record of those conversations so we can't do anything um, so that was also dismissed and his convictions and sentences were affirmed is that it I think that's it well that's fantastic so going back to technology and the law <laughs> Unfortunately, I've been rewatching all the Black Mirror episodes on oh, Netflix. No. And I really just think we need like Black Mirror laws that go through every single one of those and say, how do we stop this from how happening? How do we not? How do we make sure this never happens? So let's do some Black Mirror laws, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think there's going to be any laws getting done in Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Okay. Black, uh, yeah, Black Mirror suggestions maybe is what we can do. That's all yeah. we can do. So this is Point 2 Law Review. Go back to Episode 1 and uh, listen to the disclaimer. Um, we're on social media, all the socials, including LinkedIn. And uh, are we on Snapchat yet? I don't think we're on Snapchat. Oh, wait that a couple risky. weeks. Yeah. A couple weeks here. We'll be on We'll, the, we'll be coming to the Snap We'll be on you. the Snap. So, uh, Carney, or excuse yeah, me. Yeah, right now, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, we are point two law rev at Gmail. No, that's Twitter. Point two law review at gmail.com. Correct. And uh, what else is there? I think that's 
Yeah. We're brought to you by Anderson Klein Brewster and Brandt. We got uh, offices in Kearney, Holdridge, and Minden. Um, I'm John Brandt. And I'm Carson Messersmith. Have a great week. Busting out dead or alive.